Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 54. Shortly after, there's a knock at the door. Enter, calls Keltham, unaware of any update this might be producing in Carissa. It's the Imperial envoy who brought them to the palace and a serious-looking, dignified, middle-aged noblewoman behind him. Announcing the paracountess Isidri Astrid Asgavan Thrun here to see Keltham, the envoy says. If you have a moment, that is. Isidra Thrun says pleasantly, then looks more serious. Or realistically, more like half an hour. Is this a good time? Does lots of names indicate importance? Keltham remembers mention of very powerful wizards having unreasonably long names. Oh, and that sure is a big fancy-looking headband she's wearing. Works for me if it works for Carissa. I am afraid I was hoping to speak to you alone, Isidra Thrun says, half inclining her head in an apologetic gesture. Keltham feels vaguely like he's supposed to check with Carissa about this, but has managed to pick up the rhyme, if not the reason of some chelish interactions, and does have the ill-formed sense now that he's not supposed to ask Carissa's okay to say yes to this. All right. Keltham says. Then he runs a quick detect magic to see if he spots anything weird about the envoy, for that small further chunk of probability in case this is a Kuthite plot. Okay, Keltham thinks that looks like the arcane mark of the person who ran a bunch of spells on him last night. Carissa curties and steps back. From Mayal's reaction, she was not expecting they'd be able to get the Eighth Circle wizard needed for this conversation in today. She's pleasantly surprised. The envoy accepts a note for Lirilatha from Keltham. Isidra Thrun escorts Keltham to a nearby interview room, sumptuously appointed, but not in Doompunk, with no external windows. They will be seated across from one another in luxurious padded chairs, still monstrosities of ergonomics by Dathilani standards. Between them an intricately carved round table bearing a variety of exotic snacks and fluted beverages. The envoy, after the two go, informs Sivar that they are to follow soon and silently behind. Sivar will watch this interview through a one-way wall so that a nearby spellcaster running Detect Thoughts can keep half an eye on Sivar's own thoughts in case she wants to loudly think anything important. If so, the information will make its way to Isidre Thrun, who has one of the highest splendors that could be found on this much notice. Also, Mylol is temporarily unavailable for a while and Sivar is back in charge for something like the next half-day. Carissa is confused, but right now she should probably focus on this conversation, which is fairly high stakes, and poke that confusion later. Here, while she's at it, is a shopping list for Keltham should Lorilatha approve his project. May I inquire what this is about? Keltham says in his best, very serious mode. Isidra Thrun nods. I am, as you may have surmised from the headband, one of the highest boosted intelligence individuals in all Cheliacs and one of those who have been reviewing events on your project from here in the palace. I begin by offering you the following piece of good news. Ione Sala has awakened, and, though she is not quite returned to normal, the fact that she awakened at all is good news about her prospects of eventual recovery. One of the very smart people who are smarter than the other people. Check. It's sort of good to know they actually exist at all, and are optimizing stuff in governance here at all. Sounds like apparently good news, Keltham replies. Though, did she seem like herself at all? Like definitely Ione, but after effects. Or more like didn't return to anything like being Ione yet? 
If they don't know about the Nethys thing, he doesn't want to mention it yet, at least, not if she otherwise recovers anyways. But he's still concerned about whether it's Nethys in there now, or Ione. Isidra inclines her head. The former, I would say, though I'm going on the reactions of those around Ione Sala, rather than having very much acquaintance with her myself. Did you expect otherwise? I'm not clear on what to expect from Sir... forcible human-god interactions. Mm. Isidra briefly sips from one of the fluted thin glasses laid out on her side of the table. Or perhaps you have a guess you arrived at by stranger means. Pilar Pineda, I hope you've by now heard, has been resurrected after surprisingly having been located in Elysium, the chaotic good afterlife. After reviewing a recent report from Sevar, on a hunch, I ordered a check on whether Pineda had a fetish for, as Sevar somewhat politely put it to you, being forced, though we would usually simply call it a rape fetish. Pilar does. In fact, it is what we'd term an obligate fetish, meaning that she has not much interest in sex without it. This is not at all surprising to us, however rare such a thing may be in Dathilan. Here it is among the most common fetishes. The fact remains that you may have been said to have somehow known it, apparently by similar and mysterious lines of reasoning that led you to worry about a hidden cleric of Zonkuthon, maybe even unknown to herself, among the student wizards you've been assigned. Sevar's report says that she asked, and you said it was too complicated. I am wondering if you'd be willing to try explaining to somebody with higher intelligence. This random noblewoman is not, actually, going to be able to parse the explanation, whatever it is. And possibly Carissa should consider the person casting Detect Thoughts to be likelier to get it than Carissa, but she's not sure she does expect that. They almost certainly haven't actually patiently read all the project logs. There aren't that many people cleared to do that, and there's quite a lot of project logs and a war on. If Mylol, he has to be in trouble, that's the only reason they'd know how long he'll be indisposed, didn't know in advance who'd be able to do this. Then there isn't a wizard that powerful who's up to date on the whole thing. So if Keltham does decide to explain it to Isidri, then she's the one who'll have to figure out what Isidri should say. She casts Fox's cunning on herself just in case. If the word rape is translating at all correctly, Keltham is having some trouble seeing how the notion of a rape fetish isn't as obviously paradoxical as asking somebody to rape you, but presumably there's some elided meta-object distinction that makes sense of it. And in any case, that's not the most urgent topic right now, so Pilar has the fetish. But it's very common locally, maybe it's one-three of the population, say. If he'd also checked Ione, then taking the universe at face value, there'd be a 55% probability of at least one of the two having the fetish. But still, it should probably be called something like one bit of evidence favoring the Aerolarp hypothesis. I wasn't saying Sivar was too stupid for it, Keltham replies after taking a moment to think. I was saying the concept structure came at the end of a long series of other concepts that would take too long to explain. Higher intelligence doesn't let you bypass that sequence. What would be needed is that you have a lot of prerequisites that I'd guess to be outright unknown in Galerion. There's also the concern about whether explaining the notion of an Aerolarp to people inside the Aerolarp will drive them insane or cause this universe to collapse. 
but if Carissa is able to hear him talking about his weird theories and the very smart people immediately investigate them in Pilar and report back to him, it doesn't seem like that kind of aerolarp. They're apparently allowed to know. Anyways, though it seems kind of foolish in retrospect, he already published that private key. What? Cause the universe to collapse, what? What the abyss is an aerolarp. Many thoughts, Keltum thinks, have pieces that are completely opaque to Abigail Thrun, because they refer to concepts that Abigail Thrun simply doesn't have. Like, private key, or one bit of evidence, or, unfortunately, aerolarp. It parses to her essentially as private blank, one blank of evidence, and in the most important part, sex blank. Is there perhaps some metaphor you could use to explain? Says Isidre Thrun. Metaphor? Huh. Maybe something like pattern recognition. I'm not working off a fundamental law that reduces to simple math like the things I've been lecturing on. More like I'm recognizing pieces of the universe that match part of a pattern I know about and guessing about how the rest might get filled in. Like, actually, I don't know if you have fictional novels here. There weren't any in the Archduke's library. Do you have, like, untrue but popular stories about, I don't know, some girl who wants to rule her own planet when she grows up, and then she's abducted by aliens with lots of problems and has to solve those problems to become ruler of their planet? I mean, those wouldn't be your stories, but I wouldn't know what Galarian stories are about. We have novels, certainly, Isidra replies. Though in Cheliacs, most of the novels we have on hand predate the recent ascent of the Asmodean church here and are somewhat appallingly written. We have not considered it the best use of Cheliax's sharply limited resources to make better ones exist, just yet. An example of the sort of thing that might be in one of those novels. Maybe a boy finding a magic sword, falling in love with a beautiful princess, using the magic sword to slay a dragon, and presenting the dragon's death to the princess's father to win her hand in marriage. I admit, I have not read many of those myself. Carissa is pleasantly surprised. The answer suggests someone in the loop, in fact, has read all of the conversation transcripts, and maybe a bit of the Taldane books besides. Certainly. Huh. Keltham's sort of disappointed. He was hoping a very smart person here would know better than to talk with the probability one declarations sprinkled all over the crazy books here. He guesses that's a matter of law more than intelligence. Then if someone has read a number of stories like that, if they got to the point where the boy falls in love with a high-status woman, after having earlier obtained a magic sword, they could guess the boy was going to do something with the magic sword to impress the high-status woman. I see, or think I see. But where are you getting the patterns that you're using to determine that Pilar has a rape fetish, or that one of the girls is a Kutite sleeper operative? From reading his friend's fan fictions about a currently super-popular novel deconstructing aerolarps, Aerolarps that, by comparison, almost nobody must have actually played, compared to how many people found out about them by reading some of their friends' fan fictions, so they wouldn't be left out of discussions about it. But that's not really what she's asking, anyways. Now, how to reply without panicking her over the idea that her universe might be fictional? Which isn't even actually the idea here. But if you don't know about computer simulations and the generalized notion of laws of physics that let you imagine alternate such laws and equivalence classes of causal structures embedded in other structures and reality fluids generalizing quantum amplitudes, 
What do you even say that the smart but ignorant Galarian native doesn't just parse down to possibly we're all just a generalized illusion or maybe trapped in some sort of book? Sure go panic now. I'm not really sure how to say it, except that the patterns are in my memories out of Dathilan, and their origin in Dathilan was complicated, Keltham replies. I would not have particularly expected to find facts and events here, corresponding to those memories, and a lot of things don't correspond in that way. To be clear, I'd have been much less confused, getting here, if this world was even five percent made out of things I was expecting to see. But there's bits and pieces of this world, all over, that fit into one pattern or another. And the danger is that I'm just looking up at random clouds, and seeing faces, trees, patterns in the sky that are pure coincidence. As you say, if the fetish is very common here, then Pilar having it isn't much evidence. Now, how to reply without panicking her over the idea that her universe might be fictional? Which isn't even actually the idea here. But if you don't know about blank blank, and the generalized notion of blank of blank that let you imagine alternate such blank, and blank blank of blank blank embedded in other blank, and blank generalizing blank blank, what do you even say that the smart but ignorant Galarian native doesn't just parse down to, possibly we're all just a generalized illusion, or maybe trapped in some sort of book? Sure go panic now. This is the most disturbing detect thoughts that Abigail has ever cast. Is Sever thinking anything helpful? If you're a boy with a sword, you'd be an idiot to conclude you're in a story where you slay a dragon and marry the princess. There are lots of boys with swords, and almost none of them pull it off. You can just look up the odds. If you're a boy from another world who has already started a war between Asmodeus and Zon Kuthon, what would it even mean to be in a story where you change the world, as distinct from being in a world where you change the world? The only thing that comes to mind that feels at all Keltham-shaped is that it's an answer to what put you there. If Asmodeus copied Keltham into the world to explain law, then the girls are... Not exactly a side point, they're supposed to seduce him to evil, after all. But they're not a source of... If Asmodeus copied Keltham there, then you wouldn't expect one of the girls to be a Kuthite spy, because the process that produced the girls wouldn't have any interest in that. And most random, chelish wizarding students are not Kuthite spies. If Keltham ended up here because... She has no idea how to finish the thought, but it's at least a question... Ask him, is this in part a hypothesis about what process caused you to arrive here instead of nowhere or instead of somewhere that was systematically catching dead people? Is all this tangled up with theories you have of how you came to be here instead of nowhere? Or instead of somewhere that was catching dead people from your world more systematically than Golarian seems to? All right, that's slightly impressive. Maybe the bigger headbands are actually good for anything. It would have to be, yeah but I don't exactly have a lot of specifics, and what specifics I have aren't something I'm thinking of a good metaphor for. Let me think. Sure, if you've got enough prerequisites, it's obvious in retrospect that the explanation for what happened to Keltham is that almost all of the copies of him ended, across the multiverse of everything being infinitely embedded all over the multiverse, and this is one of the Kelthams that didn't end, in some universe that's either higher complexity than his original universe, or of course a higher complexity specific embedded somewhere simpler than that, and then Arguendo, 
If the Aerolarp hypothesis is correct, he was localized to somewhere such that it has convenient, evolutionarily implausible masochists who are super okay with not being let out of their chains when they struggle, so that hurting them during sex, which it turned out you really wanted to do, doesn't get you kicked out of that city or exiled to the last resort. Keltham has not figured out why this would be the case, but he doesn't need a specific hypothesis of why to notice what it looks like and start generating predictions. And then, of course, you have the problem of explaining this to a Galarian native who has no idea that her own world sure looks like it runs on quantum mechanics, the same as Dath Elan, and how that means there's an exponentially vast number of near-exact copies of her spread all over the local amplitudes, to say nothing of the alternate laws of physics that embed each other as substructures. Does Taldane contain the word fanfiction? No, it does not. Well... There goes that metaphor for, this world is a continuation fic of my life, because in an infinite multiverse, containing an infinite number of fanfiction writers, no book can ever truly end. Which, on reflection, would probably have been an overly disturbing thing to try to explain anyways. There are how many of her all over the place? Where and what are they even doing? Does Dath Elan actually know all this, or are they just making it up? Are you thinking possibly that you are in, not one of the outer planes that we think of as an afterlife, but rather that this entire greater universe is your afterlife? Ventures Isidra Thrun. It doesn't seem to be what Keltham is thinking, but maybe he'll explain why it's not. That gets Keltham to smile briefly. Well, this universe rather counts as my afterlife by definition, what with my life having ended and this being after it. I don't really have the concept of your afterlives down yet, though, so whatever further connotations you were thinking of importing from the standard terminology, I can't say anything about those. Is Sever possibly thinking anything useful right now? No, no, that's not it. Not that she knows what it is, but she wouldn't have asked that question, and she's not thinking how to... She cannot wait to read the thought transcript that'll presumably make this all make perfect sense. Are you thinking that this world was in some way created just for you? Isidre says. Maybe that you're the only real person here? She has not lost sight of Cheliax's goals. If Keltham thinks that, he will be much easier to turn to evil. I'd have to be pretty search-blind not to think of that possibility at all, but I rather doubt it. Anybody who put me in a fake world with a Carissa who isn't real and has no internal experiences is not at all doing me a favor by that. And why make a whole world for somebody if you're not doing them a favor? I can tap myself with a truth spell and repeat that. If your version of governance wants assurance that I'm unlikely to strangle all my students after deciding they're not real. It's quite the opposite of what governance wanted to hear, but Abigail didn't expect better. This seems like a good opportunity, or maybe excuse would be a better word, to change the subject. Abigail is starting to think that figuring out how to wield Keltham's second law is not, in any case, the incredibly good idea that it may have seemed to sever at the time. That does bring up another topic I'd meant to discuss, Isidra says. We can possibly return later to the topic of the patterns you're recognizing, if there's time. But I wanted to be sure we covered this other topic, before I return to my unfortunately busy schedule. Understood. We have a great deal more experience with people like Carissa Sevar, or for that matter, like yourself, than Dathilan seems to have by Sevar's reports. 
Is this correct? You can just ask me to review the reports, you know. But yes, or rather, my suspicion is that not many sadists in Doth Ilan know what they are, and civilization tries to prevent us from finding out, because Doth Ilan does not have masochists. If you've reviewed the transcript of my lecture on evolutionary theory as the basis of biological order, the notion of enjoying pain, the signal of damage to the body, is not something you'd expect to see. Carissa, if I was interpreting her correctly, thought masochism might have evolved in a situation where women are continuously, not having a great time, but could maybe do better by bonding with their captors. I'd put at least even money on it being something a god put in instead, or otherwise artificial. The fact that something like that even exists here, that I, a sadist, am complimented here by a perfect complement to my own desires, one that shouldn't exist, is part of why I suspect that I'm not in a universe that I matched up to at random. I'm sorry. I'd meant to move on from that, but are you saying that masochists in Galarian were created for you? No! Not in a universe I matched up to at random. Lots of worlds, and why he ended up in this world is confusing, and the most notable feature of this world from his perspective is that there are perfect matches for all his incredibly conventional kinks that Dath Elan tried and only sort of succeeded at breeding out of their lawful good planet of lawful goodness. Carissa would have responded, I'd predict that most worlds have masochists. I'm not sure how heavily that weighs in your reasoning. That'd correspond to some of the more relatively disturbing possibilities that I'm sure hoping aren't true, because I'm kind of screwed that way, either by being the only real person here, or by being responsible for the existence of a whole lot of other people, many of whom seem not to be leading very fun lives right now. But no, my main theory is that a vast or weighted infinite number of worlds exist, and I was non-randomly sent to a world where masochists exist, non-randomly dropped at the world wound where I'd run into Carissa Savar, and by the way, it so happens that whatever bureaucratic process that world used to pick the people who'd be my students would happen to run across Ione and Pilar, and also somewhere in there a girl who's working against the rest of us. Sala and Panetta got oracled after they met Keltham, but she's not sure if this changes anything from his perspective, and this cannot be asked because he doesn't know their oracles. I'm not sure how heavily this weighs in your reasoning, but I think I would expect most places to have masochists. In fact, it seems to me that masochists make perfect sense under the theory that you describe to your class. Dathalani anti-interruption norms with respect to paracountus-level people are much, much less strong than they are in Galarian. Sure, you'd notice if it happened often, but everybody can take a few interruption tokens per conversation. It doesn't mean anything. Applying evolutionary theory in general is surprisingly hard, and doing it to human psychology in particular can run into a lot of pitfalls. I'm sorry, I should have attached warnings about that, we got those in the classes I took, but I was trying to run through the subject on the way to other things, and neglected that. There's very exact rules for what you should and shouldn't predict using that theory, and if you're doing it after you've already seen what reality's answer sheet looks like. There's even more precautions you need to take, which rest on the law of probability, which I'd previously planned to explain today, before stuff happened. Keltham's thought processes show no awareness of himself being rude, only sincerity plus some background thoughts that are full of incomprehensible concepts. Not that this is an excuse in Cheliacs, obviously, but it means that reprimanding Keltham cannot be the correct move. 
she's not particularly happy about being interrupted, but has a great deal more impulse control than certain people seem to think. Well, I won't challenge your expertise or your warning then, Isidra says calmly. The point remains, you are a newcomer here. We have had masochists for a while, and we have sadists who know what they are. This I do understand, and had not meant at all to contradict. I foresee some possible points of trouble ahead for the two of you, and wish to avert those if possible. I am listening very intently. Sevar, being the sort of woman that she is, is almost certainly attracted to you in part because of a fact and quality about your situation that she is probably rather reluctant to explain directly for a number of reasons. Namely, that you have, in fact, great power over her. Because I can fire her from the project if she, what, doesn't have sex with me? Keltham doesn't like it, but he has started to grasp that Galarian is full of people who seem to think that the correct thing to do with a threatening decision matrix that would not counterfactually exist absent your predicted tendency to give in to threats is to give in to the threat. His world doesn't... have what? No, this sounds like things Aspexia has told her about gods and god arrangements. Are they all pretending to be gods there? But that's not what she's pursuing right now. Keltham is adorable. Carissa lights her own hand on fire about this thought, since other people seem to be kind of negligent on that. She so does not have time for this. As Sivar interprets her situation, Isidra says seriously, if she tried to leave you, and you wanted to keep her anyways, you could tell the government of Chiliax that you wanted to keep and have power over Carissa Sivar, as a condition of your continued cooperation with us. And then, she thinks, we'd give her to you, to keep you happy. This fact is important to her sexuality. It very nearly is her sexuality, and you need to understand that and not blunder into acts or words which cut against it. Keltham's thoughts show concealed shock and horror. This is exactly the fear he had when Carissa started saying she was giving herself to him that she wanted something strange that she wasn't saying, and that Keltham would prove unable to give her. He does a pretty good job of controlling his own expression for a chelish two-year-old. Are you saying, are you implying, that I'm with her under false premises? What a beautiful opening. You're with her under true premises. She's exactly correct. I'm not necessarily saying that to encourage you to mistreat her, but you need to understand, Keltham. There are no sane countries on the face of Galarian that would not do the equivalent of handing over Carissa Saver to you. Or worse, if that was the price of banishing plagues from our cities, and growing enough wheat for one farmer to feed two others, and closing the world wound and offering refuge to women in Osirian who want to leave their husbands and someday, yes, matching the accomplishments and wisdom of Dath Elan. Or perhaps the price of what those other countries would ask from you instead of that. Giving one woman to you who would not enjoy being so given would not be something that pleases the modern Chelish government or the Church of Asmodeus that we work with, but we would weigh the price if we did not and conclude that it was far more than worth it. So Carissa Sevar is, in fact, under your de facto power, exactly where she wants to be and needs to be. The possible problems I foresee stem from you failing to understand that this is what she needs, this is what she wants, this is how her sexuality works, and that your de facto power to do anything you want with Savar is part though of course not all of why she started being attracted to you in the first place. 
it is in the interest of Cheliax for obvious reasons that you continue to be happy with Carissa, fond of her home country of Cheliax, energized and productive for your project, and not distracted by being heartbroken after what happened when you were always careful to emphasize to Carissa how much she was free to go at any time if she didn't want to stay. I need to think about this, Keltham says. I shall wait. Question 1. Are they being honest with him or not? Subquestion 1.1. What motive do they have to lie? How do they gain from tricking him into doing something terrible to Sevar? It's not like they could threaten him with the revelation of that to governance, even if they mistakenly think he'd respond to a threat like that. And now the tree isn't branching further. Keltham is having more trouble than usual thinking about this. Part of himself is recoiling in horror, and it's not because the situation being described sounds awful for Carissa, it's because something about it seems terrible and threatening for him. Is it that he distrusts himself with power? Is it that he's afraid of pressuring himself into doing something to Carissa that he didn't really want to do, even if she turns out to want it? Is it that the entire fucking situation is mandatorily illegible with no carefully optimized meshing gender tropes and nobody is allowed to negotiate anything in plain baseline? How do you know the contents of Carissa's mind in such detail? She's picked up now, on some of the rhythm of Keltham's internal thoughts, has noticed a notion of, what does it predict? Did it come true, much plainer in his baseline thoughts to himself than in Taldane's speech to others? I know masochists, or rather submissives, which is the more precise term for the relevant part of what Carissa is, correlated with masochism but not identical to it. I read reports on Sivar and yourself. I guessed what would happen, or rather, had probably already happened. And then I had security ask Sevar if she had, by any chance, tried to tell you, possibly several times, that you could do anything you want to her, including killing her, if she thought you were ready to hear that part, and she confirmed that it was so. It is a very mundane form of pattern-seeing that rests on having seen many such relationships play out, rather than on coming here from another world. But it is not, I think, less reliable for that. To be clear, I am not saying every submissive is like this, but Savar is, and I can recognize that. There are, I suppose, other possible interpretations of why a submissive would give herself entirely to a man, whom she somehow happens to be very attracted to, who coincidentally happens to have de facto absolute power over her. But given that Sevar has in any case told you to do anything you want with her, I don't see why you would be worried that I am, say, trying to lure you into doing too much to her, more than she wants, which is itself a rather odd thing for me to try to accomplish. The part where her new dominant, that's what you are, does not understand that he has de facto absolute power over her, where he does not understand that this fact is itself something that she needs in the foundation of her sexuality seems like something of a fireball trap waiting to go off in somebody's face. I am trying to defuse it. And the reason that you and not her are saying these things to me? First of all, that is itself something you do not make a submissive do, especially one like Savar. You don't make her spell out exactly what you could do to take her, in a way that makes it clear you haven't thought of that yourself and would never think of that yourself. That makes it feel fake to her, like the whole thing is pretend. Second of all, I am under the perhaps mistaken impression that she tried to lead you to those answers and you did not listen, 
Perhaps because she was too close to your own age and not wearing a sufficiently impressive-looking intelligence headband. Keltham tries to think about this. His mind feels tired. Adath Elani remains able to complete their thoughts, except when under the effect of relatively significant drugs, or maybe if they're in the middle of falling asleep. But right now, what his mind patterns are mainly saying is, come back to this later and slower. Do you have a recommended course of action for me that's different from what I was doing already? Keltham says. Part of him suggests that their provided course of action will look a lot like chaining up Carissa and actually raping her a lot and ignoring her, countermanded, if she was still obeying, requests to be let out. He doesn't know why Cheliax would do that, but it's what it feels like they're trying to get him to do. Oh, so he's not a complete fool then, in the sense that there may be a non-fool trapped inside there somewhere? You should trust your instincts more, civilized boy. That business with ordering Carissa never to verbally request that he stop was really quite clever of him, now that his thoughts have run over it. Abrogale can't immediately see a way out of that as a checkmate against the way they were planning to lure him into evil. Carissa should have looked sad and told him that an order like that would take the fun out for her, found some excuse to turn him down. As the Keltham expert, it was her job to realize what he was really doing there, even if Abrogale didn't realize from the transcript. If Sivar is worried she's not being punished enough, she can repent her failures there. I think, first and foremost, that you should not press yourself too hard or make yourself unhappy by going too far too early, even if that's what Sivar wants, Isidra says, making a sudden change of plans. This is an evil country, not a good one. And among the foundational reasons for that is that good people all trying to help each other instead of themselves seem to inevitably end up sad and unhappy at the end of it. You have a civilization to build here, Keltham. Your role in life is not actually to make Sevar happy. She is responsible for her own life's happiness, as you are for yours. With that said, if you yourself, for your own sake and not hers, decided one day to demand that the government of Cheliax give you absolute power over her and order our security to put her forcibly into her chains any time she didn't want to go, Carissa Savar herself would be very, very happy about that. But I will quite understand if you do not wish to essay that until you are confident of your ability to discern that happiness for yourself. And, there are other women in Cheliax if Savar's happiest outcome is not what you want. You are not obliged to give literally the first girl in this world that you talk to everything that she wants from life, at your own expense. That is what it means to be evil rather than good. A further warning. Sevar is not the most extreme case of what she is. Pilar Pineda is more submissive than Sevar, substantially more masochistic than Sevar, and would, in a way very strange to you, feel raped if you made her have a careful conversation about sex instead of just forcibly throwing her onto a bed. My considered opinion is that if you are struggling and flailing with Sevar, you are absolutely certainly not ready for Pineda. Okay, Carissa likes this person. That was the correct thing to tell Keltham there. Aye. Now Abrigail wants to keep the Azidri identity and develop her and let Azidra get closer to Sivar and see if she can get to the point of actual fucking before she drops the guys in the middle. But can't possibly actually do that in real life due to being Queen of Cheliax and yes, busier than that. Oh, so it's a theorem he's not ready for Pilar, is it? 
Keltham's brain automatically tries to generate counterexamples to this totally obviously not absolute certainty, which Galarian's very smart people seem to foolishly believe, and gets as far as suggesting the visibly non-impossible world where Keltham's own sadistic instincts would kick in, and they'd have great sex and it would be fine, before the rest of Keltham's brain tells that subthread to shut up. One must distinguish the possible from the probable, and what a local, unlawful, very smart person says is absolutely certain may, nonetheless, be a better bet than not that. I believe I understand, but I should take time to mull it over, Keltham says. Please do, Isidra says. I do have a pending and somewhat awkward further topic, but it seems wise to let this one sink in first. Keltham starts to reach for one of the snacks catches himself, and tries to detect poison first, now that he has that cantrip. Nothing shows up, but then it's not like he's tried with a known poison to check that the cantrip is working. Isidra smiles slightly. They do check the food before they serve it to me, you know, let alone to you. Why trust what you can verify, Keltham says unapologetically, and eats a snack. Actually, why did he use detect poison this time, when he didn't think to try it in the dining hall before? Are his instincts trying to tell him something? Keltham now wishes he hadn't eaten that snack, but he's at least not going to eat any more. His brain, still running in the background and creative as ever, suggests that, if this is an arrow-larpish context, and therefore Keltham has a dreadful buried urge to rape somebody which Pilar matches, he could in fact run three augury spells before trying that, to check what the consequences would be. Obviously, after having first done a bunch more work to verify that the augury uses his own utility function or a sufficiently aligned neighboring one, Keltham tells that thread to shut up. He's starting to doubt this whole aerolarp business if it implies that he would enjoy that. Anyways, the concept of a rape fetish, in the sense of wanting unwanted sex, is literally paradoxical, and the term presumably means something else. Keltham thinks in such a fascinating way. Actually, there's something about it that reminds Abrogale of herself, contrasted to the way that most people who are not Abrogale don't seem to usually try to be clever, possibly because they expect they'll be punished for trying. Keltham is all about the cleverness, not in the false artificial way that Abrogale associates with people who are not Abrogale, but in a genuine way that permeates all his thoughts. He is constantly thinking of ways to make his day even more fun, one might say, if not in quite the same way as herself. They're also going to have to prevent Keltham from finding out the false future spell exists. Can they do something clever with that, with giving him false answers to auguries? The trouble is, if you have sufficiently good cause to think you're helping somebody, it may not count as evil. Even if Phrasma counts it, it may not help in the sense that it fails to corrupt Keltham in the required way. You say, Keltham says, after some further contemplation and letting things sink in, that you'd give Carissa to me, even if she didn't want to go, because the other lives at stake in Cheliac's outweighed her life. Then you do not seem to feel yourself forbidden to do that sort of thing, to override the deontology meant to be reliable, without having to think about it a lot, and forcing everyone else to think about it a lot. Rules and protections and guardrails around one life, when many other lives are at stake. Then inquiring minds might want to know if you would not also, in the event I stopped cooperating with Cheliax, decide to try to keep me here anyways, with so many lives at stake. If we hadn't made, 
and then formalized an agreement saying otherwise, that is. And perhaps even if they had made that agreement, because somebody breaking an oath and going to Abaddon over it is maybe still worth it for them. Sevar should have foreseen this annoying fucking consequence of giving him that planned story about her sexuality. Abigail herself should have seen it coming, really. It's a stereotypically good thing to say, and his good society would absolutely have programmed that particular whiny complaint into everybody from childhood. It's just not easy to think like that. Isidra inclines her head. And you're wondering why we didn't just kidnap you here directly from the world wound and not make any agreements with you first, if that's how we operate? It's very obvious why they wouldn't do that, especially if they were okay with sacrificing a few souls to Abaddon if that became necessary. Namely, to keep Keltham cooperative at the start. This would be my own primary objection to societies that are good instead of lawful. And from my perspective, no society on Galarian is remotely lawful. There was also a certain tendency, in Dathilan, for the very smart people who are smarter than the other people to also lean more good, but kept sensible in our own case, by law, that those very smart people comprehend far better than I do. I get along fine with Carissa, and expect to get along fine with my other research group members. I am concerned that perhaps the upper rank of Chelish governance is a little too good for me. Why is her life like this? In theory, Isidra says, unperturbed, there's a set of complicated replies here, and in practice a much simpler one. In theory, for example, you arrived at the World Wound, which is itself governed by treaties that Cheliac signed and indeed had a primary hand in designing. We could not have stopped you from walking out on us there. And so it was reasonable to offer you guarantees to come away from the World Wound to Cheliac's proper. In theory, our government has never said to Karis a Saver at any point that we would not sacrifice her if that becomes necessary. It's not that we'd be violating a rule around her, but that it's understood that this sort of thing might unfortunately happen, because all of Galarian is in a far more precarious situation than Dath Ilan. In principle, if Sever had been disturbed enough by that, she could have tried to sign a compact with the government saying otherwise, which we would have kept if signed. But Savar would have needed to find something to make it worth our while to sign that compact, and it would have been pointless and expensive, and not really worth it. And if you ask why Savar didn't go to a country with more rules instead, my reply would be that, while there are some countries with many more rules, they are not good ones, and also that moving countries is expensive in Galerion, and not just in the cost of the teleport. In the understandings that exist in Galerion, Cheliax is starting with you from scratch, not from the sort of relationship we had with Savar as a citizen, where it's understood that we can sacrifice her if necessary for some much larger benefit. In practice, the actual and much simpler reply is that the revelation from Asmodeus which led to this project's establishment said, or at least, we think this is what Asmodeus was trying to say, to not pull any of that on you so no such discussion was ever entertained at any level of government. If you're looking for a simple answer that doesn't require you to worry about backroom discussions by people like me, it's right there, I suppose. Possibly that's why Asmodeus ordained it so, if you feel that way. I don't think we would have decided to unsheathe blades at you, absent his order. But I can see his order simplifying things from your perspective. You might be well served at some point by contemplating in more detail why Asmodeus found it necessary to do that. 
and pay out what I gather to be very limited communications capacity on doing that. He would not have needed to do it in Dathilan, for all that Dathilan is supposedly a good country, and Cheliax is supposedly an evil one. But, yeah, I'm glad Asmodeus had his act together there. Isidre inclines her head again. As you say, and yes, you may well be right. We are very aware of how far short we fall of Asmodeus's wisdom. That couldn't actually be the reason for Asmodeus's instructions, could it? No, it has to be some pre-existing god agreement, or a bargain with Abadar and Nethys whose initial premise was that they cooperated to bring Keltham here and Cheliax got first crack at him, or one of the other likely possibilities that Aspexia reluctantly discussed. Reluctantly because Aspexia would rather that Abragail shut up and follow his orders. Absent those instructions, Cheliax most certainly could have gotten compliance out of Keltham, regardless of his society's silly pretense of a godlike immunity to threats. And now Keltham is thinking about how the other possibility would have played out. Whether he could commit suicide using a create-water cantrip or other tools that his god could unilaterally give him. But Cheliax could just raise you then, poor fool. Miracle doesn't require consent. The only danger would be if Abadar could instruct Osirion to raise Keltham before Cheliax could and Cheliax would know it was in a race and they would have that information first. Now Keltham is also thinking about Ray's dead, and thinking about the story Carissa gave him about oaths, and how he could, if necessary, break an oath over something trivial, unilaterally in a way that nobody else depended on so it wouldn't actually violate the blank, and so go to Abaddon. Keltham expects to just end up somewhere else if he did that. But he knows he might not, and this doesn't faze him. He'd literally rather go to Abaddon than comply. True death doesn't scare him as much as it scares some Dathilani, he's thinking now. And he's not even imagining Cheliak severely torturing him in a scary way, to which he'd prefer non-existence. The thought that they could break him with torture still hasn't occurred to him. He'd just walk out on this entire universe and existence itself, rather than accept a forced unfair division of gains from trade. Because if you can't do that, why would anybody bother bargaining fairly with you? He wouldn't actually have been able to do it if Cheliax was running detect thoughts on him and not otherwise restrained by Asmodeus. They've ever had experience with uncooperative torture victims. You don't instantly end up in Abaddon and instantly get eaten. But maybe, just maybe, Abrogale feels the tiniest shred of respect for Keltham at this point. That degree of fuck you is something she can appreciate. Of course, now she wants even more to see what Keltham's mind would look like when it broke. But Asmodeus said not to do that, so she won't. See, Keltham's lips are moving again, and Carissa's getting confused about the nature of good and evil again. It's getting to be a pattern. Lastwall wouldn't hand her over, probably. Why? Simplifies cooperation with people like Keltham jumps to mind as an explanation with Fox's cunning up. In a way, it wouldn't jump to mind otherwise. But obviously, the good gods do sacrifice people to horrible fates to achieve their goals. What's the difference? Is it just that good gets incredibly worked up about rape in particular? Why did Asmodeus tell them to cooperate with Keltham? It's one of three important glaring confusions right now, along with what is Maelal in trouble for? Because Carissa suspects she's probably in trouble for the same thing, even if they're going to punish them one at a time, about it, and 
What does Caden Kalian want, which she's trying not to think about, but which feels salient since they're talking about, you know, good, and whether they sacrifice people to be raped if it achieves their long goals. Mayol, presumably, is having the sort of bad day that can only be achieved by simultaneously pissing off Aspexia Rugaton, Contessa Lorilatha, and Gorthoclec. Oh, don't worry, my dear. My personal order of Irori monks won't blame you much, despite your obvious complicity in the error. They're hardly expecting you to manage me, what with my having ordered transcripts of your thoughts. And besides, your natural and self-inflicted punishment is about to come due anyways. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.